Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 and find your way to that one verse, verse 22, that begins the list of the fruit of the Spirit. This morning we are looking at uh, patience once again. We're finishing up, actually. This is part two, patience part two, I guess. In preparation for that, it just a, a, a word or two or maybe more of an introduction to kind of set the stage for some implications that I want to bring to you um, toward the end of our study time. Let me begin by saying that one of the grandest events in all of church history was the day of Pentecost, by far, when God's elect people, the church, officially entered into the new covenant era and a new ministry after God poured out the Holy Spirit on the 12 apostles. And like a snowball that, that rolls down the side of a hill and gets bigger with each revolution, so the Christian faith, as we know it, today started small and, and grew into a great force to be reckoned with. Now, by Paul's time, uh, or by the time Paul was fully engaged, I should say, in his missionary work, his Jewish critics and opponents complained that he and his co-workers had actually turned the world upside down. What a statement that is. But did you know that as grand as an event as Pentecost was, it was actually prefaced by an important and necessary waiting period? Waiting? Yes, waiting. Jesus' last words to his apostles in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, was not start preaching the gospel, but rather wait until you receive power from on high. This is how it reads. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and as far as the remotest part of the earth. You see, the very next thing that the apostles were called to do following the Lord's ascension was to hurry up and wait. Wait on the Lord's timing in sending the Holy Spirit in a new capacity that would energize them and, and carry them on this, this new and important work that Jesus inaugurated. In Acts 1.14, we find the apostles doing just that, waiting prayerfully for the Lord to move. All these were continually devoting themselves with one mind to prayer. It's true that timing is everything, but only when it's the Lord's timing. And a great deal of the Christian life is waiting for God. If you were following along in our study last time, you heard me say that waiting on God is not something that many Christians today are willing to do. They find it difficult, perhaps the most difficult part of the faith, more than returning good for evil or loving one's enemy or rebuking another Christian who is in sin. And waiting is made all the more difficult when it is in suffering. Oh, enduring, long, painful seasons of suffering, whether it's a direct result of being persecuted for the faith or simply because we live in a fallen world and our unredeemed bodies are frail and susceptible to disease. Now, suffering is difficult no matter how it comes. So for David, it was the valley of the shadow of death. And often there seems to, seems to us to be no end in sight. This is why patience has earned its rightful place as one 
of the few biblical terms that comprehensively captures the very essence of the faith. Like it or not, suffering is integral to godly patience. It's only in God's character-building crucible of testing that we show our true colors and learn the, the best way to wait on God. More specifically, as we made the point last time, patience is truly the eminent perfection of the Christian. It was, or it, it's what will mature the Christian and, and allow him to display all other godly virtues and spiritual fruit in the best possible light because patience tests them in all contexts of suffering. Maybe you hadn't realized up until now just how fitting a representation patience is of our new man in Christ. It is all-encompassing, comprehensive. It's a term that presents the Christian in the way that he should be as he runs the race of faith, totally calm, at peace, at rest, confident, trusting that what God will bring and how he will bring it and when he will bring it will be for his ultimate good. And it's well worth what many would consider to be an insufferable waiting. But it doesn't have to be insufferable to us, really. Rather, it is a valuable time of learning the suffering. It's a valuable time of learning and self-examination. It's a privileged opportunity for us to share in the sufferings of Christ, as Paul once said. It's a time for growing in the faith, a time to depend on the Lord. Just so we don't underestimate how valuable patience is, I want you to consider with me its display in the church, in Jesus' life, and in God's character. With regard to, with regard to the faith or in the church, we see from Scripture that godly patience is actually given to all Christians who are responsible to practice it in their communion with God and, and with others. Paul admonishes all Christians to be patient. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, he says, We urge you, admonishing the ruling, encouraging the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And that's, of course, to the church. The same Greek word that Paul uses for patience in Galatians 5.22 also occurs in Hebrews 6.11, where the author speaks of the importance of being diligent in service for Christ to one another. This is what he says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Can you hear the references to this lifestyle of quiet endurance. He says, showing diligence until the end, and through faith and patience, one inherits the promises. These are references to a godly lifestyle, and it, and it should characterize us. The language is all over the book of Hebrews under the theme of perseverance. It speaks of the fact that someone who is genuinely born again 
will continue in the faith, patiently and joyfully, enduring whatever comes his way, worshiping and serving his way unmoved and unaffected by it all until Christ returns because his sure hope is in the promises of the gospel. The author of, the Hebrew, of Hebrews spells out patience as steadfast endurance of faith that is not vexed by waiting. Patience in Hebrews endures because it's founded upon a sure hope, a certainty that God is faithful to his promises. The, reformer, the reformers saw patience this way. Richard Sibbs, for example, says, quote, How is patience strengthened? But by the consideration of future relief. If there were not better times hereafter for the godly, they were of all creatures most miserable. But the thought of that makes them wait with patience. Great quote. Also, God's patience is especially, a godly patience rather, is especially the mark of church leadership. If it's a responsibility of all believers, it's especially so for leadership. Paul tells young pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. It's in this context that patience is the manner in which an elder is to carry out his ministry. And Paul speaks from experience. Back in chapter 3 of this book, we read how he set an example for patience uh, for Timothy in his missionary work. Listen as I read 2 Timothy Timothy 3, 10 to 14. Listen for several phrases that speak to this concept of patience, okay? Now, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, and love, perseverance, persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in these things that you have heard and learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. Patience, perseverance, endure, continuing. Four references to this kind of godly patience. And the context that calls for patience, by the way, is rather bleak. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul commends himself to the Corinthians as a genuine ambassador of Christ with sound proofs that are the distinguishing marks of a true disciple of Christ, and one that he emphasizes is godly patience, the ability to endure and plow through miserable moments in life without giving up for the sake of the gospel. I believe that scripture surely teaches that arguably the most convincing proof of one's genuine faith is the display of patient endurance the kind that Paul displayed throughout his ministry. Here, for example, he says in verses 4 to 10, in everything commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions and hardships and distresses, in beatings and imprisonments and tumults, in labors and sleeplessness, 
in hunger and purity and knowledge and patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit in genuine love in the word of truth in the power of God by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left by glory and dishonor by evil report and good report regarded as deceivers and yet true as unknown yet well known as dying yet behold we live as punished yet not put to death as sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing all things this is the context in which paul patiently ministered and he certainly proves that godly patience must characterize the pastor elder whether in a church planting role missionary context or nurturing a local church ministry uh, and and that if this fruit is not evident in his life if it, it's it's not if it's not being cultivated then he will not pr- be productive or a good workman godly patience is also the mark of the true church not just christians not just leadership but the church as a whole Paul spells it out this way in Ephesians 4, 1 to 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, and with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve in the unity of the Spirit the bond of peace. We count two different related words for patience here. There is the word itself, patience, And there is the phrase showing tolerance. I don't know if you picked it up. But these two words also occur together in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, with equal emphasis. Listen. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. Here it is. Patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other who has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you also should forgive. Now, a few important observations here. Of the list of true biblical virtues that we just read from Colossians, that we're to practice. By the way, that, that means to walk. That means uh, practice is what Paul is getting at when he uses the word walk in Ephesians, and it's what he uses in Colossians with the phrase to put on. So we're talking about practicing. Only patience is elaborated on in these virtues, this list of virtues. Only patience of all of them, which is kind of remarkable. We're to be forbearing or bearing with one another. And notice in what context we are to be forbearing or patient when we're being wrong when someone has a complaint against us. Well, in addition to the church, we see that patience epitomized Jesus himself. He embodied godly patience like no one else and modeled it for us, trusting for the future, obeying the Father with a quiet resolve. He carried out the Father's will to the letter without despair or worry, trusting that the Father's will was the best and depending on the, Holy, on the Holy Spirit to do it. And there was no hint of anxiety in anything that the Lord did, no indication that he ever felt rushed or hurried along. Gospels demonstrate that he was on a divine schedule. 
right, which was never thwarted, never delayed or revised. Quite the contrary, there's every indication that Jesus lived his life according to God's plan. Jesus could account for every second of his life, and he had the same 24-hour period as we do, day after day after day. He was about the Father's business as early as age 12. His claims of sovereign control are here. I laid down my life. No one takes it from me. My time has not yet come. The time has come for the Son of Man to be delivered into the hands of wicked men. He displayed sovereign control such as the times he miraculously slipped through the, cul the clutches of an angry mob that was pressing on him to kill him. He was delivered into the hands of wicked men by the predetermined plan of God. And his last words before he died were, It is finished. Jesus knew God's will perfectly, and he carried it out to the letter on time in perfect control and complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Jesus' patience displayed most accurately, acutely in his suffering, however. 1 Peter 2.23, while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus learned patience in suffering. He displayed a firm and quiet resolve to do the Father's will in, in severe suffering, severe suffering, such as his time on the cross. Sneering at him, Pharisees said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, if he is the chosen one. And then the soldiers also ridiculed him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Oh, how great a temptation it must have been for him and his humanity to put these mockers in their place. But no, he wouldn't. He overrides the temptation to, to any alternative way to the Father's will, and he stays the course. He knew full well that someday they would know the truth. And the testing of Jesus' patience didn't just take place at the cross, but all throughout the kangaroo court trials leading up to it, the same taunts beckoned him to show his divine hand by putting it all to an end. But his love for the Father and desire to do his will were always stronger than the desire to act independently. And it was not the Father's plan for him to meet satanic challenges with grand demonstrations of power, but rather with patient endurance. Peter was actually an eyewitness to most of this, and he would go on to write in 1 Peter 2.23, while being abusively insulted, he didn't return that with, with, uh, with insult. And while suffering, he did not threaten. You see it. Jesus didn't take revenge. Rather, he patiently endured, entrusting his whole context to the will of the Father. We argued last time that suffering is significant to our understanding of godly patience because patience is best learned in suffering. Patience is made perfect in suffering. We know how difficult it is to stick with God's will when we 
We don't seem to be producing results that we're anticipating. In fact, obeying God often makes situations much worse for us, doesn't it? Which is why we're tempted to do something else. But we fail to realize that the consequences of our obedience are bearing fruit that we cannot always see and that God finds pleasurable. And when we read these accounts of Jesus suffering patiently, we're amazed because our inclination in even lesser tormenting situations is to seek justice right away and respect and to be justified and to be heard and to have the last word. We become outraged when we're slighted in any way. But in these instances, we have to want to please the Lord more than we want to gratify the lusts of the flesh as Christ. The church, Christ himself, and there is then also a great display of patience in God's character. God endures those things that grieve him, whether dealing with the rebelliousness of hard-hearted unbelievers who shake their fist at him, or having to prolong suffering for his people. And his patience in doing so is because it is based on his good pleasure and sovereign and perfect will. It's not situational. Having determined the end from the beginning, his times of seeming inactivity from our point of view in an unanswered prayer, perhaps, or in the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, But it's rather just the opposite. God was quite active in carrying out his perfect plan for the ages. And his plan includes, you see, the best time and place to save and to judge. Therefore, he can endure those things that take place in actual time and space that grieve him and not answer in judgment because the best time to judge those who deserve it hasn't come yet. And he will continue to bring his faithful elect through more years of persecution and suffering because the best time to reward them has not come yet. His every patient move is calculated to bring himself glory and his people good. And this is what makes God's patience completely different in nature to the world's patience. The world's patience is based on emotion we pointed out last time. It's, it's therefore situational. It's not based on God's word. It has no future aspect to it that would make its enduring responsible. It's selfish and inconsiderate of God's glory and the good of his neighbor. It's also especially scarce in grievous times where biblical patience shines the most. As a result, worldly patience lacks insight for knowing when and where it's best to act. Now, as you know, the fruit of the Spirit called patience imitates God's patience. It's the same in nature. And I don't mean that Christians are omniscient or they, they know the future in detail. Christians don't know God's will perfectly, even though they have God's perfect will in the form of the Scriptures. But like God and unlike the world, Christians can see current events from a future perspective. 
And that enables them to endure present suffering with joy and to respond to those situations with with calm and quiet resolve because they know that God has ordained these events and that he is controlling them and he will bring them to an end in the best place and the best time and in a way that brings him the most glory and them the most good. To handle events and people with divine patience is a testimony to the kind of God we serve. Perhaps this is a good point to restate our working definition of patience then. We said that patience or godly patience is a disposition that comes with conversion and it allows believers to endure grievous situations joyfully and give glory to God and grace to their neighbor because it rests confidently in God's future justice. Patience says, in any situation, especially those that are grievous and painful, I will never give up, but I will stand firm. I'm going to continue on for the Lord's glory and the benefit of my neighbor, especially the church, because I know that God has a plan for the future and I trust it. That's patience. Before we close out our time with a few implications of biblical patience, I I would like to elaborate on a Part of our discussion last time uh, that we talked about, it was on what patience is not. That is the sinful condition of being impatient and what it really says about us. I think it's important. We said that impatience is idolatrous. Do you remember that? It's It's idolatrous. Impatient moments, in impatient moments, we want something more, more than we want to please Christ even if what we want is godly. And if we're not willing to wait on God for the desire of our heart, then we'll pursue godly ends by ungodly means that don't please Christ. And this means that we necessarily go outside the Bible in in order to resort to secular means to satisfy our own desires. This is what it looks like. Christian parents who want obedient children so badly, more than they want to please Christ, will not minister to their children the way Christ commands them, teaching them, guiding them, correcting them, taking the time to nurture obedience in them, revealing their hearts to them. No, instead, they will resort to whatever works to get their children to to be obedient, beat them into submission. Become overbearing, run a Gestapo out of their house, impose several uh, severe punishments, any and all kinds of manipulation. Now, this approach is nothing more than behavior modification, and, and that forces their children into some kind of mold. Or take the pastor who wants a thriving, growing church, big church, so badly, more than he wants to please Christ, And he will not minister to the church the way that Christ commands, patiently teaching them, modeling biblical truth for them, praying for them, shepherding their souls in biblical counsel. Instead, he'll resort to worldly marketing techniques, maybe does a stand-up routine in the pulpit, tickles the ears of his audience, gives them what they want instead of what they need, addresses their felt needs complies with societal norms for interpersonal relationships. 
what he manages to create is not a church, but a social club. Beloved, impatience reveals what is most important to us. Do you realize that? It tells us what's most important to us at that moment. What we crave, what we yearn for, what we must have at the very moment or we won't be content in life. And what we want so badly replaces Christ as the object of our affections. And at that moment, Christ is not enough. He blesses his blessings, his daily new mercies, his endless supply of grace for each new situation, his covenant promises, his indwelling Holy Spirit, the light of Scripture. None of these things is enough for us in an impatient moment. The object of our desire becomes a God, that's with a small g. And we worship and serve it. We bow the knee to it and thereby commit idolatry. We might ask ourselves in these moments, what can the object of, of my desire give me that Christ cannot? That's a good question. And it's one we should rehearse with ourselves in such moments. Godly patience may have to start with a confession of idolatry and a sincere repentance. We said impatience also wants control. It wants control. This only makes sense if impatience is an idolatrous act. Whatever we worship at that moment instead of Christ, it becomes an idol to us that promises us contentment if we serve it. And to serve it, we take matters into our own hands and manipulate people and situations. We don't depend on God and his ordained means of handling the situation. We're not at that moment humbly submissive to God's way. Rather, we, we try to control what's really completely out of our control, what only God himself can control. But perhaps we fall back on the lie that Satan sold Adam for his soul. You don't need God. You can become your own authority. This, this is what was true of us, of course, in our unconverted life. And while we might not believe it anymore, some of the old habits that we formed around this lie that we operated on still linger in the flesh. They do. We, we don't shed all our bad habits automatically at conversion. We bring them right on into the faith with us. So we fall back on them in weak moments when we're impatient. Patience, impatience rather, abdic impatience wants control, patience abdicates all control, giving it over to God. It turns over the controls to the Lord and waits for him. We also said impatience doesn't trust God. In those moments when we want something more than we want to please Christ and we try to control people in situations to get it, we're really stating that we don't trust God's means or consider them to be reliable. Nor do we trust him with our future since we're not patiently waiting for his will to be done. Now this picture of impatience sets, I think, in bold relief the true nature of biblical patience. It's the exact opposite. Patience worships God. It depends on him, trusts the means that he has given us to implement while we wait, 
and believes that his means are the best possible option in any situation. Well, we've defined godly patience from Scripture as well as showed how it's displayed in God's character, in the life of Christ, and in the life of the church. We've also demonstrated from Scripture that patience is not, what, what, what patience is not, and, and what being impatient says about what's taking place in our hearts and, and what is most important to us. Hopefully you're convinced not only that you should imitate Christ in displaying godly patience, but how to go about nurturing it. And when we're not, the need to examine our hearts to see what needs confessing and repenting and change. So very important. What's left for us in our study then is to just consider four implications of what we said, just four implications of godly patience. Number one, godly patience is, is grounded in a solid knowledge of Scripture. If you want to become better at exercising godly patience, you need to know the Scripture better. This is not the only thing. This is one. One thing we need to do is know the Scripture better. You know the Scripture better, you're going to be better at exercising godly patience. If you want to cultivate godly patience, start by knowing the doctrine. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1, verse 9 and verse 11. We have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will for attaining to all perseverance and patience. Do you see the connection? As you can see, there is an undeniable connection between knowing God's will and attaining to perseverance and patience. The former enhances the latter. Therefore, develop a, a good theology, especially of perseverance and of trials and of prayer. Learn how to discern God's will through the pages of his word. Understand what Peter means when, he, when he's, what he says about being treated unjustly for righteousness' sake that we read earlier from 1 Peter 2, which brings me to my next implication— Number two, godly patience looks to Christ as the divine role model. Godly patience looks to Christ as our divine role model. In, first, in the first Peter 2 passage, Peter mentions in verse 20 that patient endure, patiently enduring suffering at the hands of wicked men for what is right, for what is right finds favor with God. If we suffer for what is right, this finds favor with God. And in verse 21, that God calls us then to endure patiently, looking to Jesus as our model. Here's what he says. For you have been called for this purpose, that is to suffer, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you would follow in his steps. Jesus endured grievous situations for the glory of the Father and the good of future believers, and so should we. Number three, godly patience does not react to situations but is proactive. How do I be proactive when confronted with a particular situation that requires patience? Well, one important step is certainly to search the scripture to learn how God would have you to respond. The sage says, consider God in all your ways, right? 
We're not to trust our own understanding, but we're to trust God's word. So you need to know when to, re when to respond the way you should. There's even a valuable principle in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, that tells us when we are to respond the way we should. It's a great principle. We call it the holding principle. It simply goes this way. Whatever is not from faith is sin. That's a principle. How does that work? Well, the principle means that when you're not sure how to proceed in a particular matter, you need to hold until you are sure. That's what it means. Because doing something out of faith is sin. So rather than rush ahead and risk acting outside of God's will, wait. Search the scripture prayerfully to find the answer, then act. And whenever, whenever you're in doubt, hold, search, confirm, act in that order. Another step in being proactive is to ask, is to ask for wisdom, as James tells us. Now, many Christians today make the mistake of thinking that asking God for wisdom means to ask him to reveal his will to you about a circumstance. But it cannot mean that for two reasons. Two reasons. First, God has already told you his will for your life in every situation, either by command or by principle in the Bible. Everything. Everything? Yes. Everything. If God would part the clouds and speak to you audibly right now, he would say nothing more and nothing less than what he's already said in his precious word. His word is sufficient. You see, there's nothing mystical or difficult about discerning God's will. We have direct commands like don't steal, don't commit adultery, pay your taxes, marry only in the Lord, and so on. And if none of the commands in Scripture address our particular situation, then we need to look to biblical principles, such as the holding principle in Romans 14. The second reason that asking for wisdom does not mean asking God what to do is that wisdom, or the word wisdom, is not an exact synonym for God's truth. They're not equally the same. They don't mean the same. How so? Well, wisdom refers to the application of God's truth. You'll find that true everywhere in Scripture, especially Proverbs. When you ask God for wisdom, you're really asking him to help you to apply the best way that you have learned from the scripture. You learn the truth. Oh, Lord, what is the best way to apply this? Help me to see the better way to apply this, oh, God. Give me discernment in my approach to this matter and to all involved. Bring to my remembrance those scriptures I've studied in the past that would shed light on my approach. Let me put it to you this way. Asking for wisdom is not asking God what to do or what you want me to do, O oh God, but how do you want me to do what you've already told me what to do in your word? A very important distinction, just so that we're not confused when we ask God for wisdom. One last step in being proactive about your response is to see your situation from the light of eternity. Situations look very different from that end. The issue 
the issues tend not to be as significant to us as we initially thought when we consider the bigger picture. What seems so important and pressing isn't as much anymore. I think of Moses' choice to side with God and suffer with God's people rather than to side with Egypt and enjoy its opulence in Hebrews 11. Verses 24 to 26, the writer says this about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to to endure ill treatment with the people of God than than to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking toward the reward. There's no question who Moses loved more, is there? And his 100% surrender and devotion to God cultivated his patience and suffering. Number four, godly patience rejoices. If you are a patient person, you are a thankful person, you are a grateful person, and you rejoice greatly. Why is that? Well, it steers us clear of anxiety worry and fear and rash decisions, running ahead of God, trying to manipulate situations and people to get what we want. It steers us away from that, and it puts us in a state of rest and peace with an overwhelming attitude of thankfulness to God. Read in 1 Timothy 1, 16 and 17, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the the only God be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Paul understood that God was displaying his patience to the church in Paul's prolonged suffering and that truth cause Paul to glorify, same word as praise, God forever and ever. In conclusion, I just want to say very simply that, again, godly patience is a disposition, a bent, an attitude that comes with conversion and allows us to endure grievous situations joyfully and give glory to God and grace to our neighbor, both saved and unsaved. Why? Because it rests confidently in God's future justice. There will be a better time and a better place for God to act. We close out our time on godly patience with the words of James chapter 5. Verses 7 and 8. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. And our Father in God, we do rejoice and we are strengthened 
by this wonderful truth. We do pray that you will find your people persevering joyfully, that you would find us to be patient with, with our neighbor, with our situations, refusing to trust in alternative ways, refusing to bow the knee to other gods that promise and make empty promises. Lord, we do pray that you would see that your people love you and are pleased and content to wait on you. And we pray that as we do, we would examine our hearts, that we would confess, we would repent from things that take our attention and our allegiance from you, that we might be better at patience, that we would be better sufferers for Christ, and that we might represent you on this earth fairly and accurately for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.